0: We hope these next few moments encourage you, challenge you, and inspire you to be who God has created you to be. We hope you enjoy it. Good morning, everybody. Happy Valentine's Day. It's great to see you. Great to have you with us. If you're watching online, I hope you're watching with the one that you love. Or if you came today, I hope you're here in the room with the one that you love. If not, just love the one you're with. That's what I say. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding bad idea um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, we are right now in the sixth of seven letters that Jesus wrote to the churches in the book of Revelation, talking about how do we as a church, how do we live into this uh, call to be Jesus people. And so today we are looking at the letter to the church in Philadelphia, not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, the ancient city in Asia Minor. It's uh, in current modern day Western Turkey. And so on Valentine's Day, we're looking at the city of brotherly love, the letter to the church there. Uh, when I was a kid, we would go over to visit my cousin and we, we, whenever we were at my cousin's house, the thing we would do is we would walk down to the railroad tracks. We would walk down the road that he lived on and just to, to go play at the railroad tracks. Now, uh, my cousin and I were about the same age and my little brother is about four years younger than us. He wanted to go with us, but we were tough we were strong, and so we would say, no, you can't go with us. And one of the reasons we said no is because we knew that to get down to the railroad tracks, you had to walk past the house with the dogs, No kidding at all. Like you would get past this house. uh, As soon as you would get kind of out in front of this house, walking down the road, this pack of dogs would just come out. They start barking and they come out and they just chase you. You're ferocious, terrifying animals. And so my cousin and I, every time we knew it was coming, we kind of walked by the house. We'd hear the dogs start barking and we just take off running as fast as we can. That's what you do. You just run. Don't stop running. Keep running. Don't look back. And finally, the dogs would get to a point where they would just sort of give up chase, and they just kind of go back to their house. Now, this ferocious pack of dogs, they were all the same breed of dog. And as I got older, I found out this breed of dogs actually has a name. They're called beagles. <laughs> <laughs> Terrifying animals. <laughs> so one day, we're, uh, we're walking down the street, going to the railroad tracks, and my little brother... Unannounced, decides he's going to follow us at a distance. So we don't even realize it, but he's back there following us. So at, like every day we walk by this house, the dogs start barking, they come out and just, just like on cue, we just start running. We just take off running as fast as we can trying to get away from these dogs. And we get all the way to the railroad tracks and we turn around and to my horror, the dogs have stopped chasing us and now they are running after my little brother. He's just kind of walking down the street after us, and now these dogs are charging him. And in that moment, I realized my little brother was about to be eaten <laughs> by beagles. <laughs> and so, so my cousin and I, we just start waving our arms and we're shouting, Bre- Brett is his name. I'm, Brett, turn around, run, run the other direction, run away from these animals. And it's just this terrifying moment. And my brother did an unimaginable thing. As these dogs are bearing down on him, he literally kind of bends down like this and holds out his hand like, here puppy, as if, as if to like pet them. He kind of bends down in like this posture of weakness, this pos- posture of vulnerability and he holds out his hand and you know where the story is about to go. Don't because they were beagles, you know exactly how this story went. All of a sudden, my brother's sitting there patting these dogs, right? They stopped barking. All they wanted was just to be pat and paid attention to. And in that moment, our world was changed forever, my cousin and I, right? From that moment on, it was like nobody told him that he was supposed to be afraid. He just puts himself in this posture of weakness, and, and it turns out these dogs are not what we thought. And so from that moment on, we were never afraid to walk past the house with the dogs. I tell you that story... Uh, Because it's true, if you think about it, that sometimes weakness is the real strength. Have you ever realized that? Sometimes weakness is actually the real strength. Sometimes weakness is actually what the circumstances call for. Sometimes weakness is actually what wins the day. Uh, Sometimes weakness is what our family actually needs to see from us. What our coworkers, our employees, uh, what our friends actually need to see from us is weakness, vulnerability. And when you turn through the pages of Scripture, weakness is actually something that God values. It's actually something that's put on, on, in a high demand in Scripture. In the letter that Jesus writes to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus, as he speaks to them, he actually talks to them as if they are poised for great success, not in spite of their weakness, but because of it. Because of it. So we're going to jump in here to the letter to Philadelphia, and then we'll unpack it a little bit as we go. So this is Jesus' words. It says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. Now, the thing that jumps out at me first as I read through that text is that Jesus literally calls them weak. He literally says to them, I know that you have little strength. I know that you're weak, which makes me wonder, what did Jesus know (laughs) about this group of people? What did he know about this church that we don't know? So in order to do that, we have to travel, if we could, to the end of the first century in Asia Minor to the city of Philadelphia. Here's what we know about Philadelphia at this time. Uh, Philadelphia at this time was like the center of grape growing and wine production. So Picture like the Napa Valley of Asia Minor in in, in the first century. That's what Philadelphia was. But at the time when John wrote the book of Revelation, at the end of the first century, what was happening is that Philadelphia was in this constant state of turmoil and upheaval and crisis. And the main reason for that is because this city had endured earthquake after earthquake after earthquake, Seriously, just one after another, it's like they would just get rebuilt and then another earthquake would hit and just decimate the city. And so what would happen is these wealthy benefactors would come along, famous people, actors oftentimes, and what they do is they would donate this large sum of money to rebuild the city of Philadelphia. And every time the city got rebuilt, they would rename the city a name that pointed to themselves. So literally, Philadelphia is just the latest name that this city had. Uh Philadelphos was the person who actually donated the money and it was, it was named after him. But this city, they kept changing the name of the city because every time it would get rebuilt, somebody else would pay money and, and rebuild it. The other thing that happened is Domitian is the Roman emperor at this time. And what's happening in the empire is there's a grain shortage. And so what the emperor Domitian says to the city of Philadelphia, he says, I'm going to order you to rip up half of your vineyards and I want you to plant grain fields. Now, the problem with this is this area of the world is horrible. It's not suited well for grain production. In fact, if you go there today, there's still vineyards today because it's like the perfect place uh, for grapes and for, you know, wine production. So what this did is they had to rip up half their vineyards and they had to plant grain, which didn't grow well. And there wasn't uh, much success with that. And so the economy, not only from the earthquakes, but I mean, you know, unemployment is up crime is up, fear is up, depression is up. I mean, Philadelphia is not a pleasant place to live at all by the end of the first century. And so what's happening here is the church that's there in Philadelphia is under pressure, not only from the outside world, like the other churches, but also the Jewish community there is persecuting, as we just kind of read about a moment ago, the the Christians who live there. And so, What what does Jesus say to them? In this letter, as he begins to write to this group of people, he says, look, says, you've been rebuilt again and again, and every time you've been given a name, Jesus says, I'm going to give you my new name. I'm going to write my name on you, and you're going to be known by, by my name. He says, I know you're weak. I know you have little strength. So he says to this group of people who are so weak, he says, I'm going to make you pillars in the house of my God. And, and you'll be pillars for all of eternity. You will never leave. You know what's amazing? I was looking at just some of the, the archaeology and some, the excavation that's been done in Philadelphia. And when you look for the church in Philadelphia, the only thing that remains of the church in Philadelphia, actually to this day, if you go there, are these pillars. Isn't that incredible? Now, this church was built sometime after John wrote, but it's it's amazing to me. All these centuries later, Jesus says, I know you're weak, but I'm going to make you pillars in the house of my God. And the pillars of the church are the only thing that's left standing still to this day. He says, I'm going to do this on your behalf. In fact, to me, the most amazing thing about this letter, as you compare it to all the other letters, to the other seven churches, is that in this letter, Jesus just keeps talking about what he's going to do. In fact, the letter is almost, it reads almost like this list of promises. Did you catch it? Jesus says, I know you're weak. Uh, And and really the only thing he commands them to do, he just says, hold on to me. You've been holding holding on to me. I want you to keep holding on to me. And then he says, as you hold on to me, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give you my new name. I'm going to spare you from the time of trial that's coming. I'm going to make the the Jewish community that's persecuting you uh, bow down and acknowledge. And he says, I'm going to actually make you pillars in the house of God. It's just him saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. This is all the things I'm going to do for you. It's very different than all the other letters. You compare it to like Thyatira, one of the other letters we've studied in this series, where Jesus is like laying it out. Here's what you need to do. Step up to the plate. He says, I know your weakness hold on to me, and as you hold on to me, here are all the things I'm going to do for you. So the question I want to ask us as we think about, what does this letter have to say to us today in our world? I just want to invite you to think about, where do you draw your strength from? In your life, in your day-to-day experience, where do you draw your strength from? Jesus says to this church in Philadelphia, uh, I know you're weak. So it's not that he thinks they're tough. It's not that he thinks they bring anything to the table. So, So what did they bring to the table? They didn't bring strength. They brought weakness. They didn't bring solutions. They brought surrender. They didn't bring power and skills and abilities. They brought dependence to the table. And what Jesus says to them is, you may be weak, but you've got me, and I'm the only strength you really need. In fact, I love the way Jesus introduces himself. Have you noticed in each one of these letters, he introduces himself a little bit differently. And so in this particular one, the way that Jesus introduces himself, I'm going to read it to you again. He says, I am the one who holds the keys of David and opens a door no one can shut and shuts a door that no one can open. What's interesting about that is that is actually a direct quotation of Isaiah twenty-two twenty-two. It's from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah. Now, why is that significant? Isaiah twenty-two twenty-two is a messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy about the one who would come, descended from the line of David. That's I hold the key of David. And he was going to be the one, the eternal king, the one who would reign forever and ever. Jesus is saying, you're weak, but let me tell you, you've got me on your side. I'm the one who it all pointed to. I'm the one who was before. You, you keep giving a, being given a new name and earthquakes keep happening and decimating this place. I'm the one who's going to be here long after it's all over. And I'm going to give you my name. He says, you may we- be weak, but you've got me. The whole point of this letter, if you, if you want to just write it down, if, if you're a, a note taker type person, this is the whole point of the entire letter is this idea that Jesus is the only source of true strength in an uprooted world. Jesus is the only source of true strength in an uprooted world. And, and what he's inviting the church in Philadelphia to do is keep holding on to me, keep letting me be your strength says, I'm the only source of true strength in this world. Now, that statement and what Jesus is saying to the church here in Philadelphia, it actually raises or kind of brings to the surface a major problem that people have with the gospel. I'm serious. This is a major issue that people have with the gospel. And that major problem people have is that the way that you enter the gospel, the, the way that you receive the gospel, the way you, you, li- you know, live into it in your life is through weakness. See, that's not what we like. We don't like that. Our, our weaknesses are the things we try to hide. Our weaknesses are the things we try to cover up, we try to mitigate, we try to make sure nobody knows about it and we have a plan for. The last thing in the world we ever want to do is appear weak. And the problem is, that's the very way that you enter the gospel, is through weakness, through humility, um, through surrender, through dependence, and, and allowing Jesus to do it on your behalf. See, we don't like that. We think the gospel should be like the antidote, an antidote to weakness, <laughs> right? We think to ourselves, God is strong. Therefore, I, I guess I'd better be strong if I want God in my life. And to see it, this, to see the way that we have such a problem with this, all you have to do is listen to the prayers that we pray, You'll, you'll hear it in yourself. You'll hear it in others and the way that other people pray. If you just pay attention long enough, what we do is we actually pray and ask God to fix the situations of our lives so that we don't need his strength. Don't we? That's what we say when we face a, a situation that threatens us that makes us look weak, what we do is say, God, will you help me? Will you just make me strong? Will you fix this situation so that I appear strong, so that I'm able to overcome it? We actually pray and ask God to fix it all so that we don't have to depend on his strength at all. But the gospel message is not that Jesus is gonna come and make us appear strong in every situation so we never have to look weak. Paul in Corinthians said it best, He said, actually, his strength is perfected in our weakness. The sites in your life of your greatest weaknesses are the very places where his strength will become most evident. It's through our weakness that his strength is perfected. Sometimes weakness is actually the true strength. Um, this season of, of my life has been a, a time of, of weakness, of appearing weak, and of uh, being in a time where I'm, having to, um, where, where I'm having to receive from others and I'm having to uh, allow other people to, to kind of be there for me. I don't like this. This has not been a, a fun time. And um, there's a passage of Scripture that's become kind of a go-to, me, go-to for me. In 2015, when I was first diagnosed with cancer, Uh, Psalm 23 became very, very uh, precious to me. And I would say even in this season of life, Psalm 23 is kind of where I go to uh, when I'm feeling weak. And and you probably know it even if you didn't grow up in church. It just says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores, restores my soul He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then it gets to the point where it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now, we don't like that part. I mean, even like when you first read it, it kind of catches your attention because we don't think that's what Jesus should do as our shepherd. We don't think that's what the gospel should be about. We shouldn't have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We should get to walk around it, right? We pray and say, God, will you fix the situation so I can just walk around the valley of the shadow of death because I'm a Christian. Wouldn't that be great? We've talked about this before. Jesus isn't a way out of struggle and weakness and suffering. He is the only way through. So he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. And if Jesus is with you, that's all death can ever be. It's just a shadow. Says your rod and your staff, they comfort me? You, you prepare a place for me at the table of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. And then at the very last line of the psalm, he says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me. Literally in the Hebrew, it's will pursue me, will chase me down. Good, your goodness and mercy will just keep coming after me all the days of my life. And then I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever interesting, that word mercy, if you study uh, that, that word in the original Hebrew, it says, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. The word mercy is the Greek word hesed, or I'm sorry, the Hebrew word hased. Can you hear, can I hear you say hased? Okay, you're somewhat awake this morning. Let's try it again. Hased. you got to really, <laughs> all right, good. The, uh, the word hased is actually a really important word in the Old Testament, The reason I sit here and make you say it is because it appears again and again and again. It's actually a very significant word. It's translated different ways. Sometimes it's translated mercy, like in Psalm 23, but uh, most scholars agree the best translation of it is where it it, it appears as the words unfailing love. It speaks of God's love, his unfailing love, which is an incredible thing. To talk about the quality of love that would be unfailing is, is God's love. When you think about the qualities that we esteem in our world and in our lives, we always speak of them as being like limited resources. I made a list, literally. Think about it. Patience. Some of you are praying for patience if you're a parent of a, of a toddler. Uh, patience, we talk about patience as being something that runs out. Patience can run out. Truth can be twisted I mean, we know that today, don't we, in the media age we live in? Uh, Anger cools off or subsides. Hope has to be kept alive, right? That's how we speak of it. Uh, Love, at least romantic love, like we celebrate on Valentine's Day, love grows cold. If your marriage is simply based on romantic attraction and romantic love, love eventually grows cold. It has to be, there has to be something else. Even... Uh, faith, which is maybe one of the greatest things that we esteem, one of the greatest qualities we talk about, our faith, we speak about it as our faith can waver, we, we can doubt. But in the scriptures, when God's people cry out to him for unfailing love, when they cry out and they say, God, will you save me? Will you redeem me? When they're asking for salvation, they speak of Christ's unfailing love, his hased. Because his said is spoken of, it has no limited Value to it. It's not a limited resource. It will never run out. And that's what I want you to hear this morning. If you, if you get nothing else out of the message, if you've been on autopilot until this moment right now, you need to hear His love will not fail you. His love, His has said, His unfailing love will not fail you. When the cancer comes back, uh, when you promised you wouldn't go back to that addiction, and then you did, his love will not fail you. When that person promised you that they were going to love you forever and be here forever, and now it's Valentine's Day, and you're watching this alone, his love will not fail you. His love will not fail you. And his love, Jesus, is the only source of true strength in an uprooted world. I'm um, in the process right now of moving my office. Literally, I've had the same office for 13 years. And so we're moving some stuff around here uh, in, the, in the building. I don't know, Blake has some giant master plan. I don't really know what it is, but um, we're in the process. I'm moving into a new office for the first time in 13 years from where I've been in this building. And so you've done this, right? You make two piles. If you've moved into a new house, if you moved into a new office, you know these two piles, right? The first pile is keep, and the other pile is... Yeah, chuck or throw away, somebody said it. Yeah, those are the two piles you make. What am I going to keep? What's going to make the transition with me to this new office? What is all the stuff I'm going to throw away? And so I've been going through and throwing away things, and I've noticed that the, this uh, pile of stuff that I'm keeping, the, the stuff that I'm moving into my new office, I, I, I've become aware. I kind of have this theory. I think the things that we keep are things over the years that tell a story about us, uh, tell a story about our lives. I think that's true. I think the reason we attach sentimental value to objects and we keep these objects over years and we move them into the next house or the next office or whatever is because these items somehow tell a story about our lives. So uh, if you were to go into my office when I was a younger man, the the objects I had around me, the, the things that I put all around in my office, if you would have walked in, they were all objects that told a story of my strengths. Because that's what I wanted you to see when I was a young, uh, when I was a young man, just starting out in ministry, uh, you know, trophies, diplomas, um, letters of commendation, things that I had done or achieved or whatever. That's what I put around me in my office. That's what I needed to see every single day. But as I've been moving on my office and I've been trying to figure out like, what do I keep? I've I've realized as I've gotten older. Uh, the things that I've actually put around me in my office are actually items that tell the stories of my weaknesses. No joke, as I've gotten older, it's been like this revelation to me, oh, actually, I, I, apparently I've needed reminders every single day of how weak I am. And so there are these things that are making the transition to my new office every day that are reminders of my weakness. I'll give you an example of one, because it's Valentine's Day, I'll tell you about one of them, um, one of them is this little broken piece of pottery, and I've kept it. It's been sitting on my desk, and it's, sitting, it's going to sit on the new desk in my new office. And it said, I, on marker, I wrote the date. It was about 10 years ago. I wrote the date at the time, and I wrote the words in marker, I will finish. And this little broken piece of pottery, what it is, is it's, it's the remnant. It's what's left of a broken wedding present that we got. It was a gift from somebody the day we got married. And it broke. I, to be honest with you, I can't even remember how it broke or, or what broke with it. But this wedding present that we gotten, it broke uh, during a season of our marriage where our marriage was breaking. And uh, I had made some terrible decisions. I had allowed someone in too close to me. And I came about as close as you can come to throwing away my marriage, throwing away my family. And during that season, I just took this little piece of pottery, like a reminder, I just wrote the words, I will finish and I just set it on my desk. And it's going to be there in the new office. Now I know what you're thinking right now. Why would you want something like that and sitting in front of you every day something to remind you of your failure? something to remind you of your weakness. But you have to understand that it reminds me of more than just that. It's not just a reminder of my failure. It's not just a reminder of my weakness. It is a reminder to me every single day that even if I break, he will not. It's a reminder to me that my marriage in his hands did not break and my life in his hands right now will not break. See, we display our power through our strengths but he displays his power through our weaknesses. If you wanna impress other people, it's very simple. Just talk about your strengths. But if you want to connect with other people, if you want real relationships, if you want real community, you got to talk about your weaknesses. It's through your weaknesses. Your weaknesses are actually the very site in your life where Jesus is going to perfect his strength. It's actually going to be where he does his best work. So so our weaknesses become the the things that we talk about. My boys, my four boys, have learned far more from me talking about my weaknesses and my failures than they ever have me talking about my strengths. Are you kidding me? There's way more to learn from my failures. So, So the true test of whether or not you've truly embraced the gospel, the true test of whether or not you truly are walking with Christ, that you are a Christian, is not that you never are weak, It's that you are stable even when the circumstances around you are not. And so, as we close today, the question I'd invite you to ask yourself is, where do you need to invite Jesus into your weakness? I'm serious. Where in your life right now do you need to just open a door and just say, Jesus, I need you in the midst of this? Where are you dealing with something that's too big for you? Where are you dealing right now with something that's too heavy for you? Where you need His strength perfected in your weakness? Where are you trying to prove your strength instead of resting in His? Where are you right now in your life, where in your relationships do you need to actually lead with weakness? Put yourself in a posture of vulnerability and weakness. Where in your family do you need to do that? This is what Jesus invites us into. Would you bow your heads with me? I want to give us just a moment to respond. And so, Jesus, right now we just come to you. Uh and God, our, our, our tendency in moments like this is just to say, God, we just want to skip past what's weak in our lives, what's broken. Uh, we want to skip past the ways in which we failed or fallen short, and, and yet um, we want you to sort of fix the situation so that we don't have to appear weak, and yet that's not what you actually invite us into. What you invite us into is so much better and bigger than that you invite us to bring our weaknesses to you, to bring our our failures, to bring our vulnerabilities because your strength is actually made perfect in our weaknesses. You are so strong. Thank you, Jesus, that uh, what's even better than having a God who can protect you from the valley of the shadow of death so that you can walk around it is one who actually can walk through it with you and who can diffuse it. That's what you did on the cross. You became weak on the cross so that we could take on your strength in your life. and So we entrust ourselves to you. We entrust our situations to you. We entrust this area that's too big in our lives to you, knowing that you're with us and your love will not fail us in the midst of it. And so God, do what only you can do. Move in ways that only you can get the credit. And to that end, we will worship you not just now, but as pillars in the house of God for all of eternity. In Jesus' name, everybody said.